Good morning and uh, happy Father's Day to you all today. It's a joy to be preaching the gospel to you this morning. And uh, at the outset here, before we open to Genesis 17 and look at our text this morning, I just want to say that um, I asked the elders for a non-controversial text. And as a new Pado-Baptist, a new Presbyterian, uh, it just so happened that Genesis 17 happened to be our next text we were going through. And so it was my joy to uh, spend time looking at this text and um, meditating upon it. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you, even though I am a recent, uh, recent convert to Pado baptism. So before we pray, I uh, just want to say that if you are a Baptist here this morning, if you're a credo Baptist and believe that a person must um, uh, profess faith and, and share that faith with the elders of a church before um, being baptized publicly, that I understand where you're coming from. And um, I, I think that there's strong arguments for that. And likewise, if you're a new Pado Baptist, I'm glad that God brought us to Christ Church together. And if you're a lifelong Presbyterian, as some of you are, thank you for not being too pugnacious with uh, your Baptist friends. And if you're out there and you're just trying to figure it all out, then God bless you in that good effort as well. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Please turn with me in the word of God to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. Genesis, chapter 17. Now it happened that when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you, and that I may multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations." And no longer shall your name be Abram, meaning the exalted one, but your name shall be Abraham, the father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. 
Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, one who is born in the house or one who is bought with money from any foreigner, one who is not of your seed. A servant who is born in your house or one who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, meaning my princess, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, princess, shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at the season next year. So he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had spoken with them. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And now all the men of his household were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. In this text, God appears to Abram, who we've been uh, reading about and hearing about over the past weeks and months. And God has this encounter with Abram and speaks with him and then he goes up from him. And you may or may not agree with this, but I take this to mean that, uh, that this is a divine appearance of God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, who's speaking with Moses. Moses uses 10 of these Toledoths to structure the whole book of Genesis. And here we find ourselves in the sixth of the 10, which simply mean begotten things or generations. And so here we are in this section about uh, Terah, Abraham's father and his, his sons and his lineage and their, their stories uh, in the world. 
God has already promised Abram land and seed and blessing. And we, uh, I believe uh, Pastor Dan preached that from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. But now it comes to the point where God is, is coming back after many years not visit, uh, without visitations to Abram. And he's establishing or confirming his covenant promises with him. So I just want to say that God communes with us, with you, with your families, with our church, through covenants. That's the only way that God communes with his creation. And a lot of ink has been spilled to try to parse out what, does, what is a covenant and how can we define it. I remember when I was in seminary, um, we read a lot about it and everyone has their own definition of it. And they can get pretty long and complicated, but I think one simple way to think of covenant is solemn love. And by solemn, I mean ceremonial, formal, committed, dignified, sworn, stately, majestic, imposing, wholehearted, and awe-inspiring. So we just attended the friend, uh, a friend's wedding um, recently in White Bear Lake, and um, and as we were listening to their, their marriage vows and the, the sermon that accompanied the ceremony, we, we recognize that how solemn this event is, right? It's not a joking matter. It's not a time to, uh, uh, for the bride and groom to not be taking it seriously, but they're before the congregation and they're making vows together for the rest of their uh, lives on earth. And the same with covenants between God in us. God communes with us through solemn love, and it's through covenant. And so in Genesis, as we have been tracking the story of Abram, we've seen that God is creating a new man, kind, and a new nation through this man, Abraham, and that it requires nothing other than covenant. And so now, now that Isaac is right at the gates, he's about to be conceived in Sarah, um, God is coming to confirm the promises to, to Abraham and Sarah. So the, uh, briefly, just the structure of the text you're looking at in front of you is that there's four progressions in the divine appearance of God. God confirms his covenant with Abraham in verses 1 through 8, and then he gives the covenant sign of circumcision in verses 9 through 14, And then God blesses the covenant dynasty through Sarah and Isaac in verses 15 through 22. And then it finishes with Abraham's obedience to the covenant as he uh, is circumcised and has all the males in the household to be circumcised in verses 23 through 27. But before we get to application, I want to um, dig a little bit deeper with you into the symbolism of this text and what, what it means. Because I feel like a lot of us are confused about circumcision or have questions about circumcision. Circumcision for most of my life has been sort of a mystery to me. What does it, what does it mean? Uh, even all the, the technical definitions you get in seminary of what it means and how it fits into the Bible and applies to us get very uh, kind of tricky and, and uh, you can get lost in it. Um, but I believe that the Bible is symbolic and metaphorical in many ways. 
our, the world we live in is metaphorical and that metaphors and symbols are true. And so I think we need to think about the symbols here. So if we go back to the beginning of Genesis and we see God creating Adam and Eve um, in covenant with him, he promises them they're going to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion in the world. And here we see Abraham and Sarah who are a new Adam and a new Eve. When Adam falls and sins against God, God, what does God do? He kills, um, presumably uh, slaughters an animal and clothes them with uh, the, the animal skins, which, which means that God offers a blood sacrifice for man. Yet even with the sacrifice, God still cuts Adam and Eve off from the tree of life in the garden of Eden. And he sets up cherubim at the Eastern gate of the garden with a flaming sword that flashes this this way and that to guard uh, them from getting back to the tree of life. We see Adam's sons, Cain and Abel, um, bringing their sacrifices or their offerings to God. And, um, And I take this to mean that God has, through his own sacrifice of the animal, has set up a liturgy, a worship service, a way of God, a way of man worshiping God. And so he's already set up a liturgy for man. And that's why in the ancient world, all all the nations are making sacrifices is because God has already set this, this pattern up for man. So the garden is a temple and the Eastern gate is presumably the place of blood sacrifice. Uh, with the sword there, the flashing sword. And with the flaming or flashing sword, we think of the Levitical priests uh, slaughtering the animals and offering them up on the altar to uh, be offered up in smoke to God in heaven. And they do this outside the tabernacle and outside the temple. So blood sacrifice is essential, but what does Cain bring? And I'm, I'm, going to diverge a little bit from Pastor Dan's interpretation, but he mentions this interpretation as well in his sermon a few weeks ago. Um, Abel brings animal sacrifices. He brings the firstborn of his, of his flock and the fat portions as a, as a um, blood sacrifice to God. But what does his brother bring? Um, Cain brings um, fruit from the ground and God has no regard for Cain and his offering, but he has regard for Abel and his, and his blood uh, sacrifice offerings. And so, so blood sacrifice is uh, necessary. It is necessary. And, and it's true for us today, too. Um, but we think of even Cain's response to his jealousy and his anger and hatred of his brother when his brother is accepted and his offering is not, what does he do but offers a blood sacrifice of his brother to the demon gods? And so blood, blood sacrifice is inescapable. So the point is this. Um, we cannot be truly fruitful men and women apart from blood sacrifice before God. And circumcision is a blood sacrifice. It's the cutting off of the flesh and at the point of man's, the instrument of man's fruitfulness and in fatherhood in the earth. And what does it show us? It shows us that we are sinners and that we need a sacrifice to come back to God.
Circumcision is a synecdoche, which means that one little thing represents the whole. And so the circumcision of man's foreskin represents the need for the whole man to be cut off, the whole man to be, to be, uh, to be sacrificed, to be cut off, to be punished for his sins, for our sins. And the last symbol I want to mention here is that it takes place on the eighth day. Abraham is to sacrifice all the males on the eighth day, which, as you remember, it's the seven days of creation. The eighth day is repeating the cycle. And now we're in a new week, which means we're in a new creation, which means that we must have blood sacrifice to enter into a new creation with God. So now I want to take just our remaining minutes here to, um, as they say, hopefully begin to preach to your conscience and to apply uh, what we've seen in, in this text. This, this text is obviously uh, ripe with, with um, causes for us to be offended. And I, I suppose if we were at in, in a class at the University of Minnesota, maybe an Old Testament class, that even reading this uh, text would be scandalous uh, for maybe our fellow students and teachers. Um, you've got Abraham's patriarchy. You've got he owns slaves. You've got blood, uh, the, the bloody uh, sacrifice of circumcision and all of these things. But I think that nothing here is so offensive to you and I as God's absolute authority. God appears and says that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is the one to whom Abram must conform his life. And God commands Abram, walk in my ways, be blameless before me. And we know from St. Paul in the book of Romans that Abram was already a Christian. Abram Abraham was already a man of faith um, long before this. And God still comes with these with these demands and this absolute authority. And we see Abram's response that he falls before God. And it's the same for us today. God commands us to walk in his ways. He, he commands you to, um, to obey, obey his word and be blameless. And it doesn't matter how long we've been Christians, but, uh, if we want to truly walk before him, we must first fall on our face like our father Abraham did. So God has all the authority in this text. He will make the covenant. He will make Abraham fruitful. He owns man's body. Um, feminists say, uh, my, my body, my choice. But God can actually say, my body, my choice. Every male in, in the household will have the foreskin cut off or God will cut him off. So God has authority to cut off even our skin, even at the most uh, uh, precious points of who we are. He is the creator who made our skin and he can command it to be cut off. And so he is the absolute authority over history, over the future, over generations, over mother's wombs. God renames Abram to Abraham, the father of a multitude, and Sarai to Sarah. And so he is, he is sovereign. And I think for us, many of us um, have been Christians a long time or grew up in the church. 
and many children here, you've had the privilege of growing up in the covenant community. And we, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I'm very content with God staying in the past with Abraham. I'm very content with him commanding Abraham, um, having authority over Abraham. But when the spirit begins to apply the word of God and the commands of God, the law of God, to me, that's where the conflict begins. We're content with God staying in the past, but you know that God won't stay in the past because as you live and as you go to work and relate in your families, you know that God is speaking to you through your conscience as he's commanding you and as he's telling you, this is evil or this is good. Go this, go this way and, and do not go this way. And you hear his law preached from the pulpit here at Christ Church. So you know, you know his authority in your life. So if we're honest, we both love and we loathe God's authority. When, we, when people are supporting my desires, my lusts, when God is supporting my desires, my lusts, I'm okay with God. I'm okay with, with people. But when God rejects our desires, when God rejects our lusts, we despise his authority. Or if people chafe against our desires and lusts, we begin to stiffen our necks um, against God's fatherhood and, and the fatherhood um, that is displayed in the, the people around us. So I, I, am, I know that I'm speaking to Christians and you are not done with your race. You're not done with your war. Um, I remember I was uh, speaking with a pastor once and asking him what do the people of the church need to fight against? What, what is the war that they're in? What are the, the things that uh, they need to battle against? And there was sort of a disconnect b between like war, we're not, are we at war? But you are not done with your war. I believe that you as a Christian are chafing against God's authority at some intersection of your lust and his law. And you, like me, stiffen your necks, your, your necks at times or seasons against the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the great deceptions as I've been part of Reformed evangelicalism for, for uh, many years is that once, we, once you are converted to Christ, is that once you've already bowed before God, you're no longer at war and you can let your guard down. But you know that you are at war and you know that you should be at war against your flesh. So today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. So that, that is the application of obedience in our, or rather uh, authority, God's authority in our text. And now I wanna move on to the applications of atonement and then obedience. This text shows our need for the atonement of blood sacrifice. Circumcision is a bloody cutting off of the foreskin. And if we go back to the garden, we see that Adam is vocationally a gardener. He's called to take the seeds of the earth and plant them in the soil and bear, bear fruit in the earth. 
And likewise, he has seed of his own in his own body that he plants into Eve, his wife, who is a garden herself, and she is to uh, bear fruit and have children. But when God cuts off man from the garden, God must now offer the sacrifice to God in order to be acceptable, the blood sacrifice of the animals. And so, in other words, man offers a sacrifice on the extremity of the garden, the very eastern edge of the Garden of Eden, in order to be fruitful again in the world. And circumcision is just like this. Circumcision is a microcosm of the liturgical sacrifice. Circumcision is a blood sacrifice at the point of man's, uh, the instrument of man's fruitfulness. And there will be no fruitfulness for you or I or our families, our churches, um, our our presbyteries, um, our networks, whatever, apart from atonement. So we know from the prophets and the apostles that the most important part of atonement is your and my faith in the atonement. It's our faith in God's sacrifice. The prophets call Israel to not have just the, the, the um, physical circumcision, but also that they would have circumcised hearts. And we know from St. Paul that Abraham had this faith prior to receiving circumcision, whereas his descendants would receive the, the sign of the covenant and, and they would hopefully manifest actual true faith pointing to the sign. So Abraham is a father of all with faith, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, according to the book of Romans. And in the text we read earlier from Colossians, you heard that you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord. You are to walk with thanksgiving in Christ. You are not to be taken captive through philosophy and deception. And why? The apostle Paul gives us the answer because in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with human hands. The body of your sinful flesh has been removed. This is the circumcision that you need. You've been buried with Christ in his baptism and raised with him through faith. You were dead in your trans transgressions and the uncircumcision of your hearts. But now God has made you alive with Christ and has forgiven you of all of your transgressions and sins. So you, it's obvious you need atonement. We need atonement. We need a blood sacrifice for our defiled conscience and our law, our law breaking. But you have it. Our church has it. And you have it because God has circumcised your heart in Christ. Your flesh has been cut off and you are alive now. And you're able to be fruitful in your families and vocations and uh, in, our, in our communion at Christ Church. And so I just simply want to say, um, before we move on to obedience, is that it's possible. And those are kind of the words that I was thinking even for myself this week, looking at the text and meditating and, and repenting of my own sin, is that it's possible. The, the St. Paul tells us, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ because that's who you are. And so it's possible. So moving on to the last application here for us is obedience. 
God's authority and atonement must lead to your obedience. Notice Abraham has faith and he obeys immediately. He does it that very, very same day. He's circumcised. Um, Ishmael is circumcised and all the men of the house, whether born in his household or bought with his money, are, are circumcised. He cuts off all the foreskins and I believe Pastor Dan will be preaching the next couple chapters, but we're going to be going from here into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment, his cutting off of the Sodomites from the earth because, because they're unrepentant, because they don't belong to him, because they don't trust him, and they go their own way. And so Abraham's obedience is, and, and his, his household obedience is contrasted over the next couple chapters with um, he is saved while the Sodomites are going to be cut off from the earth. Abraham's obedience is also contrasted with Moses. And you might remember the strange story about, um, about the Lord um, seeking to cut him off on his way back to Egypt. And his wife Zipporah has to circumcise their son and throws the foreskin at Moses. Um, and what's happening, but Moses is being dis disobedient. He's not trusting in God and in applying the covenant sign to his sons. And so Zipporah's obedience allows him to, to live and continue, continue on by God's grace. So you and I, we want to obey God without hesitation. We often don't, and I find that this is true in my Christian walk, is that... Um, I will make excuses for my sin. I will blame God. I will blame others. And I'm sure that you recognize that in your own flesh, in your own battle that you're in. But this is where we must remember our circumcision and our baptism into Christ. We must consider ourselves dead to our sins, to our lusts, and alive to God through our Savior, Christ Jesus. We have been cut off with Christ on the cross so now we can bear fruit, the fruit of obedience to God. I believe that the church's obedience to Christ looks like baptizing the nations and teaching them to obey Christ. And as a, a new paedo-baptist now, I believe that Christians should be baptized as well as our children as um, parallel to what happens with God's dealings with Abraham and to his offspring. The cutting off of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Gomorrah is right around the corner for Abraham, but the family is spared as they take the covenant sign upon themselves by faith. And in the Twin Cities, we look around in our, um, at Min uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and we look at our, the um, corporations we work for and the, the media that we ingest, and we look around, it's Pride Month, and we begin to see that we're not as unlike Abraham and his household as we might have imagined, being around, right around the corner from Sodom and Gomorrah in their destruction. We do not need to, well, in closing here, just a few more, uh, a few more bullet points. We do not need to physically circumcise our sons. And maybe you were thinking that throughout the whole sermon is, uh, the actual physical sign and how prevalent it is in America. It's amazing to me that like 
of American males continue to be circumcised physically. And I think it's a testimony that millions of Americans will continue the very covenant sign that is of no longer any value while avoiding the substance of the sign, which is repentance, faith, and the obedience of faith. Circumcision is seen as a prophylactic procedure today, meaning that doctors think it uh, present, uh, prevents disease. But this begs the question in my mind, didn't God create man good? And didn't God create man with foreskin? And isn't there a greater spiritual disease that haunts us far more than physical disease? And isn't the point of this physical sign actually that the spiritual reality of heart circumcision? St. Paul writes that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for, for anything. And don't let anyone lead you astray in that regard. But what counts for something? Only faith working through love. Only a new creation. Only keeping the commandments of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, bless the hearing of your word now and cause us to bear the fruit of obedience for your glory in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.